This episode of Good Chat is brought to you by Simmons Homes. Every day across Australia, it's tools up for Team Simmons because their people stand by their promise to start building your new home on time and on budget. So if you're ready to join the hundreds of Australians they're welcoming home each month, talk to Simmons, the great Australian builder. Now on with the show. Welcome to Good Chat, brought to you by Sportsman Mobile and Footy Live. It's time to talk all things football with your host, Jimmy Sarba. Hello and welcome to the first official episode of Good Chat, formerly known as The Gym Session, where we sit down with special sporting stars each week discussing their story, interests, on-field feats, and everything that you, the fans, want to know. That's all thanks to Simmons and Sportsmate and the Footy Live app, of course. Download that Footy Live app today, right now, this second. If you haven't, you are nuts. Get it got so many great things happening good content new sportsmate podcast network as well and great opinions news and stats all ready for finals it's great make sure you download it someone who wasn't a stranger to finals is our guest today it's mr brock mclean uh now brock he had a really impressive on-field career with the d's and blues but while it looked all together on the outside off field brock was going through a tough battle of mental health issues and an eating disorder. Uh, He used alcohol and drugs to self-medicate and he wound up hitting several rock bottoms before he turned his life around. Brock speaks about all of that today uh, incredibly open and honestly and he discusses all the highs and lows of his AFL career. Some would say it's a good chat. I would. Hashtag good chat to let us know if you agree. It's time to open your ears, sit back, unless you're driving, and enjoy. This is a good chat with Brock McLean. Still a chance, there go, McLean! Sensational! Quickly over the top, McLean's just kicked one from just about there, and he's got his second, and the Blues have got three in this term. McLean's marked, but he can't kick the journey. Hammers it, over the back, Casbolt, it's cleared the back, it's a goal! Boy, oh boy! Okay, today's guest is a tough fierce competitor who never did things by halves during his 157 game journey at the highest level. Through an impressive career with Melbourne and Carlton, he built an on-field reputation as a courageous midfielder whose attack on the footy and decision-making ability was as elite as they come. This man battled countless injuries as well as extremely difficult mental health issues over 11 years in the game to come out the other side as an inspiration to many. Post-footy, he's continued to share his learnings and important messages with others who are struggling while building a career in the finance industry and living life as a proud family man and father. It is my great pleasure to welcome Mr. Brock McLean to the Good Chat Podcast. Welcome, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. I'm not sure if you can say I'm actually blushing. That's probably the nicest thing anyone said about me in a long time. So no, thanks, you, you mate. I really it. appreciate it. No, you deserve it, mate. I find you very inspirational. I told you as well to be open and, and honest and everything like that. Hey, did you know on the weekend, Sean Burgoyne and David Asprey joined you in uh, playing their last ever game in a draw? Did you know wow. that? Okay. Yeah. Do you remember there your you last go. game? I wonder if they'll get through Brownlow votes like I did as well. You did. You had like 30 touches as well, didn't you? Mate, 30 touches a goal and true Brownlow votes. They say you're only as good as your last game. So, yeah. (laughs) Shameless self-promotion there. No, it's good. I don't think I'll get the three Brownlow votes, but they had a pretty decent game. I think Asprey had one of his most Yeah, I think Juddy got the third that day, so I'm happy to to play second fiddle to him. Yeah, no worries. Hey, how's lockdown life for you, mate? Look, mate, it's been, I guess, stressful. 
um, at times. I mean, I sort of designed my life when I found out we were pregnant to be as time maximizing as possible to be able to spend as much time as I could um, with with Bonnie. So that meant for me doing like a few little sort of part-time things here and there. And then with sort of lockdown and, and not being able to do, you know, most of those things, it's become a little bit stressful um, in that regard. And, um, you know, not being able to, to do things that you would normally do from a mental health perspective or a routine perspective yeah. has made it a bit difficult at times. But the silver lining for me has been having Bonnie um, yeah. at home and, and having Steph at home as well and being able to spend all this extra time um, with them and um, you know it's time that you never get back um, it's the most valuable resource uh, we've got so my whole mindset this time has been around just trying to reframe the way I look at things and, mm. and, and that has been purely looking at it from I'm at the moment I'm very time rich um, and it's you know I'll never probably be in this situation ever again from that perspective so yeah. we've been able to make things work um, and at the same time I've been able to develop this amazing beautiful relationship and connection um, with my daughter which is just you know absolutely priceless to me yeah. and, and something that I hold very dear it's the most important thing to me as well as my relationship with Steph. Yeah amazing. Do, uh, outside of, of home life you're obviously working in finance and you've done a lot of things around the mental health space you're a mental health ambassador you've been through it all obviously depression anxiety eating disorders um you've been diagnosed bipolar and all through your career nobody even knew it um and then post footy you've been really um open about it and you've said that vulnerability is a strength how do you feel about talking about it post football i can imagine it might not be the easiest thing to do yeah look um there just came a point where i just felt strong enough within myself i'd made like huge inroads into you know dealing with a lot of my issues and, and and becoming accepting of myself and viewing myself in a loving and compassionate and, and, mm. and empathetic manner. And I always used to talk about it with my psychologist and psychiatrist was that, you know, when I am in a position, when I, when I feel well enough, I do want to bring, you know, light and attention um, to this, you know, to this area and to help destigmatize, you know, a lot of the things that's sort of said um, about mental health. So initially, I think the first conversation was, you know, a little bit daunting. Um, and I was quite anxious about it. And that was just, you know, purely out of, you know, how it would be received by people um, and how it would come across. But, you know, it's been a, it's been a nice little surprise, to be honest. And there's been you know, like a few little things that I probably, you know, wasn't expecting um, that have come out of this. And, you know, it's been been really cathartic you know to share my story and share my journey and share my experiences you know with people and complete strangers um and at the same time it's allowed me to 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 sit back and really relive everything that I went through and and mm -hmm. and and take stock in how far I've come and the improvements you know that I've made in my life so it's allowed me to really recognize you know the effort and time and um, and persistence you know I put in and to come out the other side which you know unfortunately not a lot of people um, do so those have been the two little um, you know bonuses for me you know on top of just promoting um, the overall importance of you know positive mental well-being and mental health yep you, you know you mentioned there it took you a while to accept it or to open up about it do you think that's because of the way you were raised I know you, you've said you were raised in a kind of environment it was like blue collar you know get on with it be tough that sort of thing so it was kind of a habit for you just to keep pushing and not talk about your feelings is that, is that why yeah, I mean, very old school family, like anyone who knows um, a bit about my family, like my pop, uh, very, very hard man, 
played in the 38-45 Premiership of Carlton, played in the in the in the bloodbath of the famous the infamous mm. bloodbath of 45, and he was very very old school Scottish descendant, or uh, his father was Scottish, and you know was a bare knuckle fighter back in the day. So yeah. you can imagine what type of yeah. family he grew up in, and then you know. Uh, obviously, my dad was was one of seven, and um, his brother, his older brother Ricky, who a lot of people were, would remember from the '60s and '70s, and how much of a lunatic he was on the footy field, and you know, so that real, um, you know, hard ass type of um, mentality, you know, I was sort of born into, and um, and that's how I was raised as well. It was, you know, anything that's put in front of you, you just have to work through it. You never complained. You just got on with things, and um, you know, when I was growing up, Dad always had the habit of of always pointing out. Um, the negative in my game or, you know, praise was very hard to come by. So on one hand, it did wonders for me in my football career because yeah. I was always striving to, for excellence, always striving to be better and never really satisfied with where I sat in terms of my development or in terms of my performance. Um, but at the same time, it fostered this um, mindset of nothing was ever good enough or I was always focusing um, on the negative. So it was a real sort of conundrum for me or a real bit of a predicament because on one hand, it worked so well for me, this mindset and my upbringing. But on the other hand, it was an absolute detriment um, to my state of mind. So, um, you know, I'm, I've said this many a times. I'm not crook on my dad, you know, I, I you know, without that type of, um, training or without that type of, um, you know, moulding of me, I would have never played AFL. And, you know, that was my that was my dream since I was a four or five-year-old. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to ask you about what it's like to grow up in a family like that who all, well, most of them played played footy at the highest level. You said, obviously, your grandfather, your granduncle and your uncle played for the Blues. Was it so as soon as you were born, you're like, I'm, I'm going to play footy. That was it. That was always the dream. There was no other kind of direction you were thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I always had a footy in my hands from very much um, an early age. And, you know, I uh, started Vic Kick when I was in prep. You know, it was Vic Kick when I first started. That's how long ago it was. Um, and then, you know, pretty much early way, I got put up from prep to the grade two grade. It was a bit rough um, with the prep kids. Um, and it was a bit further into my development. You know, we're a, a, a family who just breed very well in terms of our size and yeah. um, our strengths. I was very lucky. Um, in that regard. But, I mean, Dad was a very good footballer as well. Um, but, unfortunately, he got injured quite um, early on in his career. I think by the time he retired, he'd, he'd done his shoulder six times um, and his knee twice and had to retire at the age of of 23. And I think that was one of the major driving factors for, for how he was with me. You know, I think mm. he was the first to admit that he was probably um, – Maybe not lazy in his um, in his efforts to be a footballer, but maybe took some shortcuts or you know drank and smoked quite a bit when he was you know a teenager and probably didn't didn't give himself the best opportunity of, of making it um, all the way. So I think that was a, a big reason and why he was so hard on me because he didn't want me to make the same mistakes and he just wanted me to give the best opportunity um, of succeeding and making it to the highest level. Yeah, you're very impressive as a youngster and then you get pick five, go to the Demons in the 03 draft. Um, you, I think you won one flag with Paul the Cannons and then maybe you lost another close grand final, but you were best on ground in one of them. Um, what's it like coming into a club as a first-round pick? Was it, Did you feel pressure or were you just excited to be there? 
But I was just excited to be there. And I think, you know, bottom age, I came into the season, I, to, I didn't really have the draft on my radar um, at all. You know, uh, I started playing with the under-18s at the Cannons as a 16-year-old, yeah, yeah. um, played all year myself and Adam Yakabuchi, um, lost that grand final by one point, um, which was heartbreaking. I happened to be on the... Uh, on the player from the opposing team, Stevie Dinell, who kicked two goals in the last five minutes to get him over the line. So that really cut me up. Yeah. Um, and it was a real driving force for me uh, the following year. Um, and it just turned out, I just had a really good year. I mean, I made um, the Vic Metro team, um, made the All-Australian squad, had a really good carnival. Um, and then come finals time, I think we were undefeated all year. And then we lost in the, in the first qualifying final but then won the next three games by you know huge amounts and you know I was best player in the finals for the Cannons and ended up being best on ground um, in the grand final so I think that really catapulted me into yeah. sort of the, the draft conversation um, and it just so happened that the D's were looking for a you know a, a couple of sort of tough nut inside midfielders and you know Colin Sylvia went number three and, and I went number five and yeah. um, you know I, I didn't really care you know what number draft pick I was or I didn't feel any sort of pressure expectation it was just you know you're drafted um, and in a sense it's almost the easiest part of your football journey getting to the AFL club from there you know making yourself into a regular AFL player is probably the, the next hardest thing because you go from being um, you know playing within playing against people your own age to playing against yeah. men and seasoned professionals and guys guys who've been in the system you know for 10 plus years so yeah first day I walked in the change rooms with David Neitz and Adam Uze and, and Jeff White and Brad Green and Cam and Bruce, and it's like, oh my God, you know, I'm sort of not in Kansas uh, anymore. And I just, you know, I was always a bit of a confident kid. And yeah. first thing I did when I got in the chain, I just walked with my head down, went straight to the corner and, you know, messed around in my bag for probably half an hour until it was ready to go out. And I put my gear on and, and out I went. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. What, what were your memories of the first, you know, the first period there at Melbourne? Because I, actually, in your debut, I think you hit the goal in your first quarter of footy. So it was good. You know, you burst onto the scene. 04, 05, 06, Melbourne play finals. It was a good period there for Melbourne. What was that culture like at the start there? We'll be back after a quick break. Probably my, you know, when I look back on my footy career, it's probably my, you know, my most fondest and my happiest times, okay, um, yeah. you know, in footy. My, as you said, my first game in Fremantle, went over there and I think I kicked a goal in my with my second kick um, in footy and, and had a really good performance in my first game. We had an amazing win where we came from behind in the last quarter in the, in the pouring down rain. And yeah. I just remember being on this absolute... Um, high and then you know the following week played against Collingwood kicked a goal and it was Queen's birthday but it wasn't quite the same high as it was as my first game yeah but, yeah you know nevertheless and then you know we played finals first year got knocked out in the first round and then second year you know got knocked out in the in the first week and then 
06 was when, you know, I really started to sort of, I think, make my name, um, you know, as a good footballer. And it was, it was just before the time when, you know, uh, all these high rotations, um, you know, came into to AFL. It was, it was that period before when things really changed and it was still really much an endurance game mm-hmm. rather than a repeat effort game. So that really suited me to the ground being, you know, not a quick midfielder or not explosive by any, um, by any stretch, but, you know, um, you know, that final against St Kilda in 06 where we were, you know, I think it was 15 points down, you know, halfway through the last quarter and, um, you know, kicked a couple of goals in the last quarter and had a really good game. And, yeah. you know, I'd sort of announced myself to the world at that stage. And, um, you know, I, I actually had a dream about um, um, my time at Melbourne, you know, that year, the other night. And I was, oh, yeah. um, you know, really sad. You know, I, was, I remember just being on the field. In my dream, I was on the field and I was high-fiving all my teammates. And mm. um, I woke up really sad that, you know, I'm, that uh, you know, that part of my life yeah. um, is over. And I, I don't really think I... Um, gave myself enough time, you know, to grieve that my footy career was over when it was done. Um, so I think a lot of those feelings are still sort of coming to the surface at times for me. Yeah, is it hard to watch footy now then because of because of that? Yeah, I mean it, it is. Um, you know, I don't really watch much footy um, at all these days. I mean, I can't. It's not like a deliberate thing, or it's yeah. not like I go out of my way not to watch it. I mean, I'll probably sit down and watch the finals. Um, yeah. I mean, when there's no crowds there, I feel a bit funny about <laughs> watching footy with no crowds. It is really weird. I think a lot of people would probably agree mm. um, <clears throat> with that. But yeah, look, I'd like to get to the point where one day, um, you know, I can just sit back and, and watch footy without sort of any emotional attachment to it, or, or sort of going back and reflecting on on your career. But I mean, I've been out of the game for seven years now, and it's still you know, not easy, you know, it was a big part of my life. And, mm. um, you know, it also brings back some uncomfortable memories as well, because, you know, while I was playing footy, I just wasn't very well yeah. um, from a mental health perspective. So, you know, it certainly brings up sometimes, you know, you can't help but think, you know, what if, but, you know, that's just, um, you know, it's not helpful or it's not productive. Um, yeah. So there's still, I've still got a bit of work to do in that regard. Yeah. Hey, you know, seven, the wheels kind of fell off for, for Melbourne a bit. Um, some off-field incidents as well for you. They made the paper. I mean, there was that fight in Greece and then the burnouts of training. Can you yeah. tell me about your uh, your Malou Ute? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looking back in hindsight, probably wasn't the smartest decision, but, um, you know, being young, you know, stupid, you got lots of disposable income. You yeah. know, I grew up in a, a family that loved their fast cars. You yeah, know, yeah. I, uh, my cousin Christian, who's Ricky's son, you know, he's had Ferraris and uh, Maseratis and Lamborghinis yeah, yeah. And, and Ricky currently drives around in the top of the range Bentley and dad always drove his car as hard as he could. So I sort yeah. of grew up in that environment. So, yeah, you know, yeah, as yeah. soon as I could and as soon as I was able, I was just like, oh, I just want, you know, I just want to buy a fast car. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I had a bit of work done to it as well. So this thing was just, it was absolutely scary. And, <laughs> um, you know, that day of training, I was leaving and, um, Mark Jamar said to me, you know, he gave me the, the little signal oh, yeah, that yeah. Still a burnout, yeah. Yeah. you know, off I went and I did like this 40 meter burnout and, uh, <laughs> you know, really pissed the other uh, groundskeeper off and, yeah. and rightly so, I, I, you know, if I went back there today, I reckon the burnout mark would still be there. So, um, you know, I was, I was very young and immature and mm. um, I wouldn't say arrogant, but just, um, you know, I thought a lot of those things just, just weren't an issue. I still, still thought they were okay to do being the knock out bloke that I was and, you know, getting into a fight in Greece and, you know, getting into uh, getting arrested in Germany, you know, mm. that same year as well and spending 24 hours in a German jail cell. Yeah. 
probably not the proudest moments Jeez. of my life. And, you know, alcohol was a big factor yeah. um, in that as well. But, you know, huge learning experiences um, for me and, you know, something that I'll, that I'll never forget, to be honest. Yeah, was that during that period there? Because you've said, I think when you went to Carlton, it kind of got worse. I think you've said, but it was always, um, you know, those mental health issues as well. Like off field, were you using alcohol as a way to kind of escape a little bit and that sort of that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, so they were, it was a means of escaping um, yeah. and you know, sort of suppressing and numbing myself. I, I was yeah. never good at dealing with emotions, especially uncomfortable um, ones. So my mm my attitude towards it was to always run from them um and it just made everything worse and then when alcohol started to not work um that's when i turned to drugs and uh you know particularly cocaine um and ecstasy but at this at the same time you know because i was getting injured quite a bit when i was injured um you know i was in my mind i wasn't a footballer um and my self-worth at the time because i had a very low self-worth and mm. opinion of myself my self-worth was tied to what i was doing so if i didn't have footy i had a really low self-worth so partying became a source of self-worth yeah. for me because i was very good at it you know yeah, as you yeah. said before i was a very all or nothing person so everything i did i did 100 percent. yeah so i became very good at it and very popular um, when I was partying, you know, a bit of a life of the party and, you know, guys would like to be around me and, you know, I'd be, as I said before, you know, lots of disposable income, so shouting drinks, shouting drugs, all that type of stuff. So it became this real source of self-worth for me. Um, and over time that just got, you know, worse and worse, particularly in those times um, when I was injured. Um, and then, you know, that was just, you know, I just got caught in this cycle where yeah. things got worse. I felt worse. So I would, you know, abuse drugs and alcohol even more, which in turn would make me feel worse, which would in turn make me, you know, drink and, and, and use drugs even more. And then, you know, when footy finished without that source of self-worth for me, I just became, you know, this really sort of unhappy and, and depressed and, um, you know, partying just became my only source um of self-worth so it was uh you know by the time i started to seek help i had a lot of these really unhealthy behaviors you know ingrained mm. um you know into my life and it had is one you know like yourself if you're partying after footy and that sort of thing how do you recover for like the next week and then train and that sort of thing like mm. it, it just seems crazy that you could perform at that level and still be partying that much i wasn't i wasn't a very good sleeper um, you know, I'd had, uh, I'd done a lot of sleep studies, um, you know, in my mid twenties about, you know, sort of why I wasn't sleeping that well. And I had yeah. sort of mild to severe sleep apnea. Um, so I've got a receding jawline, a very narrow airway. Um, so when I lie back, my sort of my, the, my lower jaw really blocks my narrow air cavity. So I struggled to get sort of air in. So it was, mm. I think I was waking up like 60 times an hour or something like that in these sleep studies. So I wasn't used to sleeping well yeah, yeah. to begin with. You know, I could easily go to training on two or three hours sleep um, and easily push out a good session because yeah, I'd become yeah. accustomed to that. I was yeah. used to it. So when it came to not sleeping or, you know, partying hard and getting very minimal sleep, like that was just, you know, sort of a, uh, a normality for me, okay. except, you know, during the week, I wasn't, you know, sort of drinking or using drugs on the weekend. It was, you know, it was that, but, you know, it was still sort of the same sleep effect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did you had one strike, didn't you? You got one strike and had some people question like, how does the AFL system work in terms of drugs? So like you got a strike and then were you targeted then um, from then to, to, to test a lot of the times and how did you pass so many times? <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I quickly, I quickly found out that you know which drugs you know were got quickly out of your system. So yeah. I think that the I got uh, a positive strike maybe for methamphetamine um, or, or um, MDMA, which is you know commonly referred to as a street drug ecstasy. Um, so I sort of realised that that stayed in your system um, for a couple of days because I got I think I got tested two or three days after the weekend. Whereas I remember one time getting tested on a Monday morning and I'd been on cocaine up until probably Sunday lunchtime um, and I didn't test positive. So I quickly worked out that yeah. cocaine was in and out of your system pretty quickly, um, you know, and especially if you had a sweat or, you know, if you went for a run or, or that, you know, before coming um, to training. So that was how I, you know, you know, I did get targeted, but, mm-hmm. you know, I was able to sort of, you know, um, dodge a lot of uh, positive drug tests because of, because of that. Um, equation that I can do. Hmm. End up requesting a trade to Carlson at the end of 2019, and you wore the same number, I think, as as your grandfather as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I wore cool. seven in my first year. In the and first then year, fish, then changed again. Fish finished up, and then I requested to be, be number four day. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Um, going to Carlton from Melbourne, how different was the culture? Uh, look, footy clubs are pretty much all the same. I mean, I, I I'd moved from Melbourne. You know, we'd won, I think two wooden spoons in a row the year before that, I think we finished second last. Mm. So, you know, it wasn't exactly the greatest um, time, you know, in the, in the club's history and, you know, coming to Carlton, they were sort of on the up, you know, they'd had, you know, they'd been through sort of their, their lean period. Um, you know, they had three uh, number one draft picks, Murph, Gibbsy and Cruz. They had um, Juddy there as well. So mm. there was a real feeling of, you know, we're on the up, we're on the improve. Um, the new $20 million facilities, you know, just got built. Whereas, you know, at Melbourne, we were still training at the Junction Oval and having our meetings out of a, um, you know, a makeshift sort of uh, almost like a shelter shed type of uh, classroom, the old portable classrooms that you used to go to yeah, yeah. in high school. So it was just a completely different sort of feeling. But, um, you know, I remember going there and, um, you know, in the off season, I just really wanted to make a good impression um, and a name for myself. And, you know, I only sort of gave my body a, a break for sort of maybe for two weeks. And I just, you know, just started training like an animal mm-hmm. in the off season. I came back and I won the, won the time trial on day one and, and really made a good impression on the club. And I was absolutely training the house down and my first few games were really good, but then, you know, started breaking down in, yeah. in round five. And, um, you know, I'd, I think by the time the year ended, I'd had three not three knee ops and, and an ankle op. So it wasn't exactly the greatest way to uh, to start out my year at the footy club. But, you know, that was just based on me training like an animal and, and not giving myself a, a proper break. Yeah. How was you? Because everyone said you were the hardest trainer every session. How is that compared to guys like like Juddy? I know you said he was the hardest player you've played on and, and the best you've played with. So how, how does he train compared to, I don't know, the others? he just tried he was a lot smarter um you know and it's something that took me a really long time to figure out you know as i said before i was a very all or nothing person so whenever i did something i did it to the best of my ability so even if it was supposed to be a light session you know i'd be really nearly going sort of flat stick or um so juddy was just very smart he knew when to knew when to go hard he knew when to just sort of take it easy um and that's probably the best advice you can give any sort of young kid coming into the system is know what works for you know how your body works know what type of track how your body responds to certain types of training and then pick your moments so you know if it's if it's supposed to be a light session 
do a light session. Yeah. And then when it's supposed to be a session where you can go a bit harder, go a bit harder and get your blowout then. So, um, you know, that was something that took me a long, long time to figure out, and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, by the pro, you know, by the time that you know everything sort of finished up, it was probably too late. But I mean, you live and die by the sword, and um, you know, I'd probably rather it that way than the other way, and, and being sort of too lazy or not really training hard enough, you know, because I can, um, you know, I can sort of go to my grave knowing that you know I, I I did train, you know, with all I had, you know, when I was out there. One of the things that that really shocked me hearing about you speak post footy was your your eating disorder you spoke about and that happened like for years in your career didn't it can, can you explain yeah. how that came about so i think it started um probably started in about 2010 yeah. um uh the club sort of uh came to me or the coach rats sort of said to me he said listen you know we think with your leg speed and all the injuries you've had we think you you need to lose a couple of more kilos. And at the time, you know, I naturally weighed about 90, but I'd, mm. I'd play and I trained at about 85. So I was already sort of, you know, five kilos under my natural body weight. And to get there, I had to watch what I ate, you know, pretty uh, strictly. So to lose another two or three kilos on top of that was going to be a real stretch. But because I'd, you know, I'd been injured quite a bit, you know, I was probably out of favour in the eyes of the coaches um, and there were probably other guys ahead of me. So I was like, no, nah, I'm not giving them any excuse not to pick me. Um, I'm going to do everything that I can in my power, um, uh, you know, to, to get down to that weight. And, um, you know, eating disorders and, and, and the, you know, their underlying psychiatric condition, they're very similar to, you know, to depression or anxiety or, you know, OCD and the fact that you just get, trapped in these sort of these thought loops these ruminating thought loops so i just you know got to the point where i was just again all or nothing so strict with what i was eating that you know i'd be so strict for so long that i'd you know i'd end up you know just craving like a bit of junk food and you know it started out um you know if i ate something bad i'd go for a 10k walk after training um and when i got sort of tired of doing that because you know that was sort of time consuming i started taking laxatives whenever i um whenever i had some junk food and you know that became just you know sort of unbearable because of the strain and the the pain that i'd be feeling in my guts you know for days after that um and then it just became easier for me to purge um you know everything so um you know just because i'd you know, deprived myself of this food for, for so long, I ended up craving it so badly that I would just go on binges. And that just yeah. became a real pattern of behavior for me for the next um, two or three years um, in my footy career. And, um, you know, probably what didn't help was when it, once I got back into the side, you know, that sort of reinforced that. Um, and even in 2011, when I wasn't playing senior footy, I was still playing well, you know, mm. in VFL, I was getting best on ground every week. I won the best and fairest. Yeah. And, um, so that was reinforcing that what I was doing was having a positive effect, yeah, um, yeah. you know, on, on my football as well. And it was the same with my drug and alcohol abuse as well. Like, because I was playing well, even though mm-hmm. I wasn't at AFL level, I was like, well, my performance is great. Don't do anything differently. Um, so yeah. it just reinforced all these toxic behaviors. So it was, you know, it's, it's nuts to talk about it now, but yeah. when you're so caught up in what you're doing and you can't really get out of those destructive patterns of behavior and those thought loops. I mean, you can't really see, you know, what you're actually doing to yourself. Yeah, that's crazy. So just to think like nearly every night you're going and, and eating junk food and you're throwing it up and then yeah. you're going through anxiety at the same time and then you're partying all weekend and then you're playing footy. It's just crazy to think that 
and no one knows like in the background like you look at brock mclean when you're watching him on tv you're watching him run around you'd have no idea that mm. someone's going through that like was yeah. there kind of resources available to you at the club like did you know it was a problem or you were just kind of like oh that's just how it is no i, I deep down i knew it was a problem but yeah. you know there are probably a lot of factors at play you know i was a very proud person so mm. you know i didn't want to admit you know, that I was struggling. I wanted to be yeah. perceived as this, you know, strong person that, you know, even though I wasn't in this, you know, playing in the seniors and I was going through a bit of a rough trot with either form or injuries or whatever it was, that I was still this reliable, mm. strong, nothing's going to affect me um, type of person. As I said, I grew up in a family which probably, you know, laughed at mental health, you know, didn't take it seriously, thought it was a, you know, was a crock, mm. um, so to speak. And, um, you know, pro- and because I'd become so accustomed at hiding it you know it became just routine yeah. for me to be able to put on this front um and act like everything was was okay you know there was still this happy-go-lucky jovial um, life of the party um type of guy um but you know it was it was like that at the footy club but then when i got home you know i've said this on a number of occasions you now a lot of the time i'd just lock myself in my room and lie there with my dog and i'd either cry or i'd just be so drained of all my energy because of how much it was consuming me that you know you know and then i wouldn't answer phone calls or you know i spent very little time with my teammates outside of footy um because i just never wanted to see me you know the way that i was yeah, it sounds like footy was saving you a little bit though because you at least had that. So when I guess you're 16 games in 2014 and then the club tells you at the end, you know, we'll we'll organise it when you, you're going up overseas at the end of the, the season. When you come back, we'll organise it and, and you'll be playing next year. But you find out while you're overseas that you're not going to get another contract. Like, yeah. How does that feel? Yeah, oh, mate, it was... It was devastating. I mean, it was soul shattering. It was heartbreaking, you know, whatever term you want to use. And, um, you know, the fact that I was overseas with no one that I knew really well, I mean, like I was traveling by myself and, you know, I was staying in hostels because, you know, that was a great way to to meet new people. Um, And that was something that I really enjoyed doing. But, you know, not being able to talk to the close people in my life or open up to them, you know, it was going to be a real stretch to to open up to, um, you know, complete strangers, guys that I'd only met, you know, uh, a day or two earlier so you know I did what I did best and that was like you know I, I ran from my problems and I you know I chose to drink and I chose to abuse drugs and I tried to numb and suppress um, everything and again I just pretended like that I, everything was okay and that I wasn't affected because I was this super proud person and mm. you know I didn't want the world to know I didn't want the people close to me to know that I was really affected um, by this but you know deep down I'd had the only thing that I ever really knew um uh how to do um i'd had it taken away from me after i'd been you know sort of promised well not promised but um you know told that i was a required player um Mm. for next year so it was uh it was really devastating but again i just kicked the can further down the road and you know as i said i'm still having sort of dreams and um you know these um reliving of emotions of of complete sadness um you know that my footy career is done and dusted and that you know that's seven years after i finished up Mm. so then yeah obviously not offered another contract You, you go on a bit of a spiral um, you're not going through a very good stage in your life. I think 2017 was was a really dark time. H- how do you get out of it? How do you turn it around and and change and, and be the person that you are today? Yeah, I mean, just uh, just little bits at a time. Like, um, so, you know, 2015, I chose not to work first year out of footy, which was the 
the stupidest thing, um, you know, one of the stupidest things I could have done because I just had no structure in my life. Yeah. You know, where I was living, I was living a couple of blocks off Chapel Street. So, you know, I just became this absolute party animal. And then, yeah, as you said, 2017, you know, everything just got too much for me and I, you know, attempted suicide. And, um, you know, very lucky, very lucky I was, uh, you know, found when I was. And, um, you know, I managed to, to survive. I'm very thankful that I did. Um, so it just started out by sort of small steps. You know, I started seeing, um, a psychologist, um, you know, making sort of gradual changes um, along the way. And then, you know, just it was just little bit by bit. And, you know, at the time I couldn't see that I was making progress because I was, you know, it's probably making going one step forward, three steps back. Mm. Um, but, you know, your, your recovery process takes sort of years. It doesn't take, you know, I was very impatient at first and expecting to get better in two to six weeks. And, you know, when that didn't happen, I thought, oh, I know everything's a disaster. I'm not going to get better. I might as well just, you know, um, you know, suck it up. And, you know, this is how I'm going to be for the rest of my life. And I'd resort back to my old behaviours. So, um, you know, it wasn't for probably another you know, two or three years that I really started to see some improvement. Um, and then, you know, things started to come together, you know, really easy. And, um, you know, it was a, just a holistic approach to recovery. It's not one thing, um, you know, that you need to focus on. It's a myriad of things. And, you know, unlearning old ingrained destructive behaviours takes time to unlearn, but you can unlearn them. Any learned behaviour can be unlearned. And I guess, you know, when my I guess the real majority of my healing began was when I addressed the core of my issues. Um, you know, that was around my, my self-worth and, and how I treated myself and how I viewed uh, myself. So, I mean, that's a, a good lesson for, for anyone going through something similar is if you don't address the actual core of your issue, then you're never really going to get better. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a good piece of advice. But what, what, what's another piece of advice you'd say to people? Because a lot of the perception is, you know, I've been around footy clubs as well, all boys' schools and that. And it's like, it's, you know, the perception that it's it's weak not to be okay. You know what I mean? Like it's not people don't want to put their hand up and say, hey, I'm struggling or that sort of thing. What kind of messages have you, have you got around that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. Vulnerability is strength, you know, and it took me a long time, you know, to realize that and accept that, you know, to stand in front of someone and say that you're, that you're struggling um, and put yourself in a position where you could be hurt, you know, really badly. Like you open yourself up to someone, you know, potentially ridiculing you or making you feel like you're, um, you're a weak person uh, or that you're not worthy or that you're deserving to be like that. But, you know, until we actually put ourselves in a position, we shut ourselves off from all the good, positive emotions um, as well. And in terms of, uh, you know, treating yourself with with compassion and, and empathy and, and love, you know, that was something that I struggled with. I, but I started to turn the corner when I looked at it from the perspective of, well, I wanted to treat myself how I would treat other people. I was always very forgiving and very empathetic, um, you know, to the friends in my life and, um, you know, to the people closest to me. And once I started taking it, well, you know, if a friend came to me and said, you know, I'm really struggling, you know, I'm, I'm hurting, I've got some mental health issues, how would I respond to them? And that's how I started responding um, to myself. And uh, probably the last thing that I mentioned before was, you know, just um, giving yourself the time. You know, as I said, recovery doesn't take two weeks, doesn't take six months. Like there might not be a time period that you can put on it. Like don't give yourself an actual time frame mm. to get better. 
Um, and again, it's just not one thing. It's a whole myriad of things, you know, like getting in a good routine, practicing mindfulness, practicing good healthy habits, eating well, getting enough sleep, getting to the core of your issues, going to see a psychologist, um, a whole different, you know, breadth um, of things that all contribute, um, you know, maybe not equally, but they all contribute in their own way to a, to a good state of mind. Mm-hmm. Hey Brock, you say that everything happens for a reason. I have that same belief as well. You you say you don't regret anything because it wouldn't have made the person that you are today. When you look back on your career, though, as on your footy career, is there one moment that steps out and you go, "That's what I want to be remembered for," or it's your favourite memory? What's the one that jumps out at you when you look back at your footy career? Um, I mean, from a, a an on-field perspective, um, I mentioned before that 06 final. Um, you know, against St Kilda was, you know, my proudest moment, um, you know, as a footy player. You know, the, the two years before I'd played in both of those finals and I'd had really poor games, like really poor games. And that was something that I wasn't used to. You know, as a junior, I always played well in finals um, yeah. and I always prided myself on playing well in those big games. So to be able to, you know, have the performance that I did and play the way they did and contribute so strongly to a, you know, amazing come from behind victory was just something that I'll never forget and something that I'm extremely proud of. And then I guess off field, um, you know, while I was playing was, um, you know, probably the, um, you know, supporting the the marriage equality and the anti-homophobia yeah. um, stuff and, you know, marching with Dan Jackson, you know, being the first AFL players to march in the St Kilda Pride March with Jason Ball and, you know, standing up for a section of society that had been shamed and ridiculed and discriminated against um, for a long time. And, you know, that's something that I've always prided myself on as well as just being, you know, a good human being um, and trying to do good, you know, for other people. And, um, you know, not necessarily, I mean, it holds so much more power for a straight person to stand up for gay rights and a gay person than it is for a gay person to stand up for gay rights. So, you know, my sister's gay and, there's a huge amount of love and 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 respect and um you know for her but also have a lot of friends who are gay as well so that's something that i'm very proud of yeah. as well yeah you should be brilliant brock hey let's end with 10 quick questions mate about yourself first thing that comes to your head now these are 10 quick questions thanks to simmons who have launched the simmons footy festival for finals with sports mate and footy live so make sure everyone downloads the footy live app today and brock loves it loves the footy live app getting on there checking the scores hey, who's going to win the flag brock Oh, I'm really hoping the D's do. Like yeah. that's sort of my, my heart says the D's. Yeah. My head says I think it's going to be a bit of a year like maybe 2016 where I just think it's going to be the, the team who's playing the best footy, mm. um, you know, finals time because I really don't think there's a, a standout. Yeah. Um, you know, I think GWS could be a little sneaky. You know, they've mm. got the talent and they're playing sort of the, the, um, the right footy at the right time, but um yeah days finished on days. top and it just i mean i really feel for melbourne supporters I I haven't had success for 60 years yeah best chance that they've had at winning a flag for god knows how long and it's not going to be at the g like it's got to yeah. be in a state like every single demon supporter that i've spoken to is absolutely <laughs> heartbroken at that notion so to all you d supporters out there i feel for you so much yeah. Um, and if I was you, maybe start getting to Perth now and start getting in quarantine <laughs> for two weeks because I really feel like they're going to be there on the uh, on the last yeah, day in September. Exactly, especially that finish, the max score and goal after the siren was brilliant on the weekend. All right, let's get to these questions. So the first two are, are very um, 
similar to the home theme that we're going for with Simmons. So if you could build a brand new home anywhere in Australia, where would it be? Uh, I we, we, my partner and I recently were living in Armidale and we loved the area. We, we were friends with all of our neighbours. We were friends with people at the dog park um, and it just had such an amazing community feel to it. So I'm going to say Armidale. Armidale. Brilliant. Sell out a bit of a snob there, don't I? <laughs> no, it's, it's good. It's a good area. I love Armidale. What is one thing you wish you could add to your home? So like a pool, extra room, man cave, what, what would it be? Oh... Um, Probably, um, this is going to sound like a real sort of sicko thing to say, but hot and cold bars. So ice, you know, a real oh, hot yeah. spa and an ice bar. Yeah, yeah. As well, like they're sort of on those days where I'm, I'm struggling a little bit, I might not be feeling bad. Hot and cold showers are one of the things that, that really help in, in getting yeah. me back to a state of equilibrium. Yeah, perfect. Nice. Uh, what's your favourite movie? Uh, Braveheart. Braveheart, very good. Yeah, I used to, so when I was in high school, I went through a period where I used to watch that movie every day after school for a period of two <laughs> oh, really? to three years, I reckon. And I got to the point where I could nearly memorize every single every line, line in that movie. It's a three hour movie. So it shows goes to show him a little bit OCD as well. Yeah, that's all right. So you don't do things by halves either. You just watch the no, same movie, no. bang. Exactly yeah. right. Hey, um, I know you, you've got a few, but what's your favorite book? Oh, um, good question. This, I mean, I, I read a book called, um, I was reading a book called A General Theory of Love um, and I was reading it when we found out we were pregnant and it just yeah. turned out to be, you know, the best timing because this book just talks about, you know, um, our love and emotions from a top scientific standpoint um, and it was the perfect, perfect moment for me to read that because it was teaching me a lot about you know sort of the most important things in a child's upbringing and, yeah you yeah. know it goes on to say doesn't matter about material things it doesn't matter about your job status it doesn't matter how much money you've got all that matters is how much love um and care uh that you give to your baby so mm-hmm. it was just a really timely read for me um and something that i'll never forget and it's, it stayed with me you know on my uh, on my fatherhood journey yeah brilliant uh who's your favorite teammate of all time um, c- certainly from a comedy perspective, Travis Johnston. Oh yeah, Travis Johnston. Mate, he he was just absolutely hilarious. Like, <laughs> almost like just having a teenager at your footy yeah. club, you know, nonstop and an absolute gun of a player and. Um, you know, number one draft pick, but you know, off field, he was just absolutely hilarious. So mm-hmm. I love my time with him. Yeah, very. Uh, besides a Malu Ute, what's your favourite car? <sighs> Look, uh, probably a Merc E63. Oh yeah, I reckon. Yeah, yeah I, could, I could see myself driving around in one of those if I yeah. had the Dosh. Yeah, very good. Uh, do you have any tattoos? No. And reason why? It's just not for me. Not for you, yeah. I mean, I, I really like them on other people. I think there are some amazing tattoos out there. But, I mean, I think for me, if you're going to get something permanent, you know, put on your body, I'd want to have a significant amount of meaning, mm. and meaning to it. And I just, you know, haven't had anything like that in my life that I feel like I need to get a tattoo yeah. for. But, you know, each to their own. Yeah, I think that makes sense because I reckon if you got a tattoo, you'd probably go full body or yeah, nothing. Yeah, well, like it's one or the other. One of my best mates, one of my oldest mates from school, he's covered. I think the only yeah. place on his body that isn't tattoos is his face. So yeah. he's got enough tattoos for the both of us. So I'm happy <laughs> to just just live vicariously through him. Yeah, good. What's your favourite hobby? 
Um, yeah, I, I just love getting to the beach. Um, yeah. yeah, so I mean, we've had a little uh, like cabin slash caravan down at Janjuk since I was like five or six. Okay. So you know, I used to get down there every school holidays and just you know, going for a swim in the ocean is just so therapeutic um, yeah. for me. And and Steph's mum lives in Tawanloa, which is sort of down South Gippsland way, so Venice Bay is close by. So just every time I'm down there, just go for a swim um, every day. And it's, yeah, it's sort of one of the keys to, uh, to me, you know, um, I guess rejuvenation or feeling better or, you know, getting back into balance. It's just, yeah. It just holds so much power for me, the ocean. If you had to eat the same meal for the rest of your life every day, what would it be? You would pick one meal. Oh, tough one. Um... That's a real tough one. Um, Big decision. Dumplings. Dumplings. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah, yeah. I like dumplings. dumplings as well. Yeah. Absolutely love dumplings. Yeah. Um, so yeah, give yep. them to me every day. Good. Last one. What is your favourite song of all time? Ah, oh, favourite song. God, that is it. I love my music, and I mm. just love music uh, from all different genres and all different. Yeah. Look, if I had to say something, I mean, it's not really a song. It's like a group of songs, but it was from one performance. It's Freddie Mercury's Live Aid performance. Oh, yeah. Like anyone who knows me well knows how obsessed I am with Freddie Mercury. Every yeah. dress-up every dress up opportunity I go to, <laughs> I go to with Freddie Mercury. I've got custom-made outfits. Yeah. I've got custom-made shoes of his that I got, you know, a, a, a tailor to do, so... Probably that performance, and we did that performance, probably Radio Gaga. Radio Gaga, perfect. Rock, you are a superstar, mate. Thank you so much for joining me today, mate. I really appreciate it. As I said, find you very inspirational, mate. And opening up, like you said, vulnerability is a strength, and uh, you are very strong, my friend. Thank you so much. Right, thanks a lot for having me, James. I really appreciate it, mate. Clever handball to McLean. He snaps and kicks a wonderful goal. From the Blues.